Welcome to season three of Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez, and in this show, we'll be talking to some real life experts on how to get through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and feelings of helplessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we may be more prepared for this moment than we realize. So let's get started and see what we can relearn. Welcome to another interview of Been There, Done That. It is Saturday, June 27th, um, almost the end of June. And uh, excuse my voice and today's guests as it is... um, as it is not that early, but uh, having been in, in shelter in place and quarantine and COVID and protesting for months now, um, she tie tie at 930 mm-hmm. in the morning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I am excited to be able to morning talk over coffee with uh, my favorite uh, peer coworker, Previous coworker, uh, as they say, comrade uh, and friend uh, Rebecca Solomon um, from Los Angeles. So uh, Solomon, as we've already established, yeah. teachers teachers only refer to themselves um, in last name. So Solomon, um, what what the hell, man? Like the last time we spoke, um, we did not have a political uprising um and i have to tell you before i give you a moment to just share what you've been doing how you've been doing um and what you anticipate the future will hold um i gotta tell you i miss you and (laughs) miss los angeles and miss really home so badly during this time um you know when you live somewhere and you go deep in trying to build community and build political power and then you move away and that power keeps getting built upon and keep being flexed the issue is that you feel great that you can leave and things still happening get bigger and even get better but they are no longer your 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 people that's no longer your work and you're no longer there um to continue to to sow that uh you know to to till that soil and and to keep working on it and i feel both um incredibly joyful to see you know so many people out in the streets in los angeles and yet so sad at the same time that some of the wins um that i think should have happened uh, for the city and for the the district uh, in particular, didn't happen, um, even with such big numbers. And what I'm talking about and referring to is a big move during this time for school districts to remove police from their campuses um, as uh, part of the defund the police department. Let's really talk about where the most harm is done and where police should not be. Um, and so I, I miss home for sure. Um, and I, uh, I'm having a lot of feelings and, um, and some of them good and some of them just sad and, and also being so immunocompromised and having a completely different health and body now. I don't actually know if living in Los Angeles right now would actually make me feel better. 
because there'd probably be more actions than not that I wouldn't be able to go to. Um, the participation in political activities that I have been a part of, I mean, max a thousand people, uh, mostly 30 people, um, which is real small and real easy to keep socially distant from. Um, but when you have waves of people in Los Angeles, I think I wouldn't, I think I would have been potentially in, in more um, harm and maybe not gone. So it's, I'm delusional to think that I would have been so active back at home um, when maybe I wouldn't have. So as a teacher, as a union organizer, as, um, as a mom of a child in elementary school in the LAUSD, um, having seen the way students are treated by police um, and other uh, policing faculty on campuses and living in Los Angeles during this uh, time, how are you? What have you seen? What are you observing? What, what brings you joy? What makes you uh, have some trepidation? Well, I miss you. We all miss you over here. And as a former teacher in Los Angeles and a former organizer here and a continued organizer elsewhere, I do want to remind you about the diaspora that you created that is part of the reason why this movement is happening, right? There are people who you worked closely with, who young people who used to be in your classes. You know, that's part of what being a teacher and an organizer is, is, is not just that you can organize yourself in a new space, right? Which I know you're doing. Um, but that when you leave one space, you don't, you leave a whole, but you also leave a community that you helped create. You helped build the consciousness and awareness and sense of righteousness of, you know, building on, of course, what they co-constructed with you, you know? So I just want to remind you that I bet when you look at your social media feed, when you look at what's happening, there are a lot of familiar names. And those are people that you, you touched. And I think that's, that's an important thing to remember as you go on to build different things in different places, is that we, we especially at a place like LA High, where we both taught the diaspora that we helped create is is wild is really wild um well and and when you when you have class sizes as big as we mostly have had uh <laughs> 12 years in the classroom with uh, an average class size of around on average you know 38 uh, that's the average because i did have a class once that had 47 students in it once um you know that means that there's a few thousand people out there who I shared some serious amount of lifetime with. Um, and and I did 270 <laughs> plus educators, plus all the buildings and grounds folks, plus all the coach. I mean, we talk with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people every semester. And I just got a random call, Felicia. I got a random call two days ago from Mike Scharf. Okay. Oh my gosh, yes, he's friends with me on Facebook. Yes. Well, this is a math teacher retired two years ago who we worked with for decades, who was Avid, so problematic it, and beautiful all at the same time. Committed bike rider to work. He, he's oh. really what inspired me to be a commuter because I was like, if that guy can do it, what's my excuse? But this older white Jewish former radical is like calling me up, like 
like he's he's the least of who we sort of maybe focus our attention on but right. it's a reminder of of just how deep and wide those relationships were so i can tell you all about my joy and what's happening but i did want to remind you about how i as an organizer and the organizers that i work with are benefiting from the fabric that you helped weave before you left you know well to that end Thank you. I appreciate that. It's been a very hard, it's been a very hard couple of months. Sure. Um, and I have definitely seen, you know, I'd say a majority of the reason why I stay on social media is for my family and my friends. And then a third group, which is random and I never anticipated being an instigator to it, which is my former students. And so I stay with them because it's the reunion you can have every day. <laughs> and, um, and I see them out there either talking uh-huh. to their children or, you uh-huh. know, they were, if they taught at, you know, for the district, they were a part of the union. They were, you know, part of the strike that happened last year. And, and it's, and it's great and it's wonderful and I appreciate it. And I'm sad that I'm not there with them. Uh, so, so it can, it can be, it can be both things sure. at once. And it did, sure. it did remind me like, damn, I remember why I went into teaching. You had better odds of winning political campaigns if you thought of your students as campaigns for change and you know like um and at the at the same time your impact like it 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 might not be immediate sometimes it is sometimes it isn't but sometimes it's like way down there you know um and that's the kind of kind of stuff that I, I, I want to keep doing. And so I'm like, how do I get back into the classroom? And for those of you who are organizers trying to figure out what kind of career should I have, I'm going to tell you right now, become an educator, be a teacher, because it is the best cultural organizing you could ever imagine. When people talk about, well, I never learned that. I don't know about that. How was I ever supposed to know about this? Well, there you have it, people. The best statues, flags, everything that you could seep into the community to really make that change, be a teacher. Now that that promotion has been done. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. It, was, it was like, there was like a lot of like chanting. It was almost like a chant there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How's it going? Okay. What's I happening? Mean, you know, these last few weeks have been a real, you know, all, all the, all of it, you know, like um, youth, I work, you know, with, with folks in the organization called Students Deserve, as well as the Teachers Union, United Teachers Los Angeles. And, uh, and Students Deserve, you know, youth, they developed this COVID, this set of COVID-related demands, which were really beautiful and parallel beautifully as a teacher, the bargaining for the common good demands that we adopted during our 2019 teacher strike. And, and the teachers union also came out with a set of COVID-19 demands and we endorsed the BLM COVID demands. And so there was a sort of synchronicity across, you know, communities. I mean, we're all one community in LAUSD in lots of ways, but like across organizations to, to really sort of like stand for a COVID response that was deeply human and deeply caring. And then George Floyd was murdered by police. And 
it was time for, you know, as we talked about the last time, like a pivot, right? It was time to like turn and face directly what students deserve had been facing in some ways in pieces to try and build a coalition to win, right? First take on random searches, which, you know, these random backpack searches and body searches that are done not by the school police. We won that, you know, as UTLA picked up the demand for random searches in their strike. And then we took on, or youth took on pepper spray, which police had been using indiscriminately, particularly, of course, in schools with high numbers of black students. And we discovered they didn't even have to report it. It doesn't even have to be an incident report. And so we began to take on the question of pepper spray. And then as BLM puts, begins to put out the call for defunding school police, as Minneapolis school district cuts its ties with the Minneapolis Police Department, as other school districts start to raise this, as Port, you know, Portland, Seattle, um, Oakland, Union City, uh, Alum Rock, the Union High School District, uh, these are San Jose-related districts, um, and all of a sudden it's like, wait, no, this is what we wanted all along, right? But we started with pepper spray. We wanted to demonstrate the violence and the irrational functioning of police in a school environment. And so students began to call for defunding of the school police. And my union has a space called the Board of Directors. And we put forward a motion to call for the elimination of the school police and an educational campaign that would bring members, eventually, hopefully, you know, partnering with groups like Reclaim Our Schools Los Angeles and others is like, is like really engaged with parents, right? Because it feels like members have forgotten this. We can pass any policy we want as a union. That does not mean LUSD is going to pass it, right? This is like an orientation. This is a direction. This is a what we are saying is our, you know, North Star or whatever, like what we really want. And, you know, predictably, this is not an issue on which there is unity in this country, in this state. And in this district, neither among teachers or among all parents, right? It is a, it is a, there is fear and, and instability. And currently in a system that has the largest police department of any school district in the country, and due to its size of 400 police officers, is one of the largest police departments in the country, period. And people feel unsafe for combinations of reasons, right? Because they're afraid of the kids. These are educators I'm talking about, you know, because of how anti-Blackness and racism work. Because the restorative justice and counseling programs in our schools are underfunded and, you know, under understood and because we have the cops in our heads and hearts and so this has been a real struggle but on tuesday 
thousands of people, including tons of teachers, went back for a second time to the school board. And there was actually a motion on the table to reduce in the next three years school police funding by 90%, currently a budget of over $70 million. Reduce the budget by 90%. And while that motion did not get four votes, which were required, there were two motions on the table that included concrete and some of them immediate defunding by $20 million in school fees. And those combined motions got four votes, which says there are four votes. There are four humans on the LUSD school board that are willing to defund in some portion, in some measures. That is very different than three weeks ago, four weeks ago. What it's were the two ago. combined motions that did get passed? They did not get passed. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying three people voted for $20 million defunding and two people voted for 90, for 70 or 90% of 70 million defunding. Oh, those, so combined those, somewhere exactly. in there, there's a magical percentage Some, exactly. that four people would be willing to get behind. Or maybe time will push things even further and more and that 90% will return. And then on Thursday, a larger representative body of my union voted 150 to 50, basically, to support the elimination of the school police budget. And now, potentially, there might be a membership vote. And so we're gonna have to get into teacher, we're gonna have to get into every school in the district and, and convince them to dream with us about police-free schools. I mean, it's, it's, I heard. These youth, just real quick, these youth, man, they are amazing. I mean, yes, they're in the streets. Yes, they're wearing masks. Thank God. And then the ones that aren't in the streets are calling in. You should have heard the call-ins to the board. It was amazing. You know, they're just powerful and beautiful. These black youth are like leading this movement. It's real, it's real beautiful. Singing, poetry, you gotta check out their Instagram. It's insane. I heard it was 10 hours of testimony at the school board meeting. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I watched that whole, cause you know, I'm not personally immunocompromised, but I have a small kid. So I'm often like across the street from these demos, mm-hmm. right? Um, so yeah, I only stayed there for like three hours and then it went on until <laughs> I was only, I could only stay for three hours. I only uh-huh. stayed for three hours. Yeah. By hour six, they were writing defund LASPD in the middle of the street with their bodies. You know, then there was like singing. It was like a street festival where everyone why? was like more or less social. Distance. Why couldn't you get the four? What was, what was the school board say? Like I can imagine, and I've already heard and I've already seen for myself, the stories of why police shouldn't be on campus, right? Um, it's dehumanizing. Uh, you're treating children, not as children. Um, they actually create more violence. There's actually less safety. Um, let's go to places where an SRO officer was supposed to be there to help with, you know, a school shooting. They ran away in the opposite direction. That's called Florida. Um, where is there actually like more 
uh, safety concerns on campus. It's actually when there's an active shooter that the police are pursuing in the community and they happen to go onto the campus. Like these are, there's so many problems with having more guns and more police on a campus. Also just having police on a campus is already an indicator that that campus isn't safe. Right. Like it already creates a culture that you need to be on, you know, watching your back and what's happening. And if we know that police out in the community will target and profile particular students, you think that's not going to happen on a campus like you and I have have spoken, you know, repeatedly about how many times I personally was chased and harassed on campus by security guards and by campus police because I'm brown. I have a shaved head and I'm heavily tattooed, you know, like the amount of times that teachers are also put in yeah. these positions um, as well. It's, and you want, you want the teachers to look like the students. And then if the teachers look like the students, then they're profiled just like the students are, right? So there's, and, and I, you could go on and on. And I actually had a bunch of former students start writing on my social media what it was like for them to have never been late to school, been like 10 minutes late on the bus, be arrested by the cops, brought into campus with their hands behind their back, handcuffed, then having to go to court, crying and breaking down in front of a judge and having this traumatic experience all because they were late to school. And why is that such a crime? Because schools public schools have been defunded for decades. And when schools are defunded, they have to do whatever it takes to get the funding. And that includes how do I get the student's butt in the chair? Because that's how it counts as funding for the day. So let me bring in the police to bring in the money because that's what I have to do because education, public education is being defunded. And so what then was the school board saying as their rationale for why they couldn't get behind actually keeping students safe? Well, you know, there are, there are seven school board members. And, um, you know, three, three of them really believe, not coincidentally, I think, the three former principals on the school board believe that school police have a vital, if not essential role on police, on campus. And I think, you know, I think for whatever complex of both historical and personal reasons, they are like committed to the idea that school police are integral. Those people are, you know, I, I don't know what it will take to change those people's minds. Um, so they just kept saying things about safety that like this actually keeps schools safe. Yeah. And they, you know, everybody has their story, you know? So one of the board members has a story that he tells that's deeply traumatic, you know, but your point is well taken. 85% of school shootings take place in schools where there is a stationed armed police officer or SRO. You know, this is not, this is not what saves us. It's, it's just not. And, and then, you know, amongst the other four, there is a, there is a complex desire to, it's not a complex, they want to study the problem. They want to like, see if it can be fixed. And what's so sad is it doesn't matter that the summer before there was a blue ribbon commission um, sponsored by the city attorney 
right, where they investigated this question already. It doesn't matter that one of the school board members worked at UCLA that has an extensive, at the UCLA Education Department, that has an extensive body of research that has confirmed that of the 8% of LUSD students that, who are Black, they constitute 25% of those arrested by LA school police. Like the research is there of the depth of anti-racism, of the ineffectiveness. There was a study done, done in New York where the existence of officers around a school reduced, the more intense the existence of officers around a school, the lower black boys study uh, scored on standardized tests. Like the research is there, right? That kids feel traumatized. And, but they are afraid to take a bold step, I think. I think it's, it feels too big. It feels like, it feels too big for them. And so they want to study it. They want to have a commission. They want to investigate. Is it possible we just put the cops in different clothes? Could they just park their cruisers off campus? Could they just be unarmed, right? Are, Is are Johnny there, Depp and his, you know, young-looking undercover police officers available again for, tw- you know, 21 Jump Street? Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm not. If, if, if somebody offered them to that, that to them on a platter, I think they would eat that up. I think they would eat that up. And then two, we're like, take it down. Take it down. There is no role for school police on, on a school campus. There's just no role for police on school campus. And so, so that's, uh, that's the future coalition we hope to build. Or, you know, wait till November and kick them out and get somebody new and so well, we never put our hands in those our feet in those people's hands. Maybe maybe we can cobble something together. Help me understand this. You said that LAUSD's um, connection with the police is that they have their own separate police department with four hundred officers, and they receive seventy million dollars in the annual budget. Let me ask you: if campuses this fall are not going to be open. And if campuses didn't have anybody on them this last spring, what exactly were those 400 police officers doing? What exactly were they keeping safe? What does the school district anticipate that these officers will be doing to protect and serve students and faculty and families of LAUSD when no one's on the goddamn campuses? I mean, let's be honest, a huge, we've seen it in this uprising. I saw it during the UTLA strike. A huge part of police officers' jobs inside school and outside schools is to protect property. That's what they're doing. They are patrolling property. They are, and and it's to control people. And that's what they're doing. Because every morning, LAUSD is giving out hundreds of thousands of meals to people who have no other safety net, who in this economic situation are relying even more heavily, including to its credit, LAUSD is feeding anybody who comes. It does not matter. You do not have to prove you have a kid in the district. You do not have to prove you have a child. You can show up to Lincoln High School anytime between eight and 11, any day of the week, and they will give you a bag of food. And there are police monitoring people, watching people, 
right? I heard a story the other day, though, you know, and the students. Wait, they're monitoring people collecting food? Well, they're keeping order, Felicia. That's part of what they do. They're protecting the school building. They're protecting the workers, right? That is how they promote their role, right? Um, I even saw LAPD there directing traffic, the traffic guys. I was like, who's paying for that? Or are they just doing it as a favor? $70 million. Well, no, but I'm telling you, LAPD was also there. There's like an no. increased presence. And so students deserve actually went to the school board and was like, there should not be heavier. This was their argument. They had a fight to say there shouldn't be heavier police presence at food distribution centers in South Carolina. And there shouldn't be ICE presence, right? Mm-hmm. At, yep. at food distribution centers, you know, because that's, you know, the school police officers, they're, you know, when Black Lives Matter, all lives matter. You know, this is, the, this is the essential thing for us to understand. I heard a girl give testimony where she was like, my dad never comes to back to school night because of the police there, because he fears deportation. And in LA, the police are uña y mugre. They're their best partners with ICE. Mm-hmm. They can claim differently, but facts do not play it out. Their only thing is that they won't turn over prisoners who are already in the cells. That's like basic the extent of their, you know, claim to not partner. And they won't ask you for your ID. So it's this, it's this double thing. I mean, it's crazy. It's this double thing then where the police want to go where the honey is <laughs> to make it look like they're a part of the honey. Right. That 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 PR moment of, look, this is where we're there's food being given out for free to the community and we are here to help that effort. Don't you see that we are the helpers? And at the same time, as folks are coming to receive and pick up and get access to the services and and the resources that they need, then the cops are also there monitoring and noticing and documenting who is there because it isn't just to look good. This is now Intel. This is information. This is data collection about who's here and how to respond in a particular moment. And it's just absolutely um, infuriating that people can't see that people can't see the harm. People don't see like how, you know, um, how that happens like oh well if your dad's not gonna come to you know open house because he's afraid of ice you know i can think of three racist comments to make to that well your dad should have come here the right way or if your dad really loved you he'd do anything to be there for you you know like if you didn't do anything wrong you have nothing to fear and that is the overarching message that I think we are constantly up against. If you didn't do anything wrong, then you have nothing to fear. As if, and in that statement, the underlying assumption is that the only reason why anyone with authority would harass you is because you did something wrong. It just means you're just not paying, you, you have the privilege to not pay attention. Yeah. That that is what those responses tell me. You have the privilege to to ignore the experiences of black people around you, of brown people around you. You have the privilege to ignore that. And you personally don't have to deal with it, which tells me probably you have 
light or white skin privilege. You have class privilege. You know, it's like, have you been paying attention? And then this reform nonsense, it's like, have you been paying None of it worked. Since, two, since right. Mike Brown was murdered, the body cams didn't work. The bias training didn't work. Your police accountability, civilian oversight panels didn't work. We had to go then go fight for Measure R to give civilian, to give these panels subpoena. Like none of it worked. It because cops gonna cop because of that history. This woman that reminded us, you know, a lot of people are are learning in this moment the history of police coming from slave patrols, right? That this deep origin and history of like policing. Uh, particularly black bodies, is the history of police. This woman reminded us the LASPD, the LA School Police, came about in 1948 when there were huge influxes of black people to work in the factories, right, after, during and after the war effort. And Braceros, right? Mm-hmm. When the kids of these people started going to school, that's when LA School Police decided it was essential for it to be, to be created, mm-hmm. Right. Like the history is connected and for us to imagine otherwise is, is willful ignorance is privilege or is our own deeply, deeply seated anti-black racism and, and racism. It's just, I don't see. But but I think you bring up a really amazing point, which is in the process of trying to dismantle something and to convince others around you that that dismantling or that, um, you know, sort of eradication is justified, knowing why it was begun and started and established is key for folks to understand this isn't a mistake. This isn't an accident. Everything that's happening right now with black and brown bodies being policed and, and made to feel unsafe is by design. It is yeah. intentional. It is not an accident that people are killed. It is intentional yeah. because yeah. before we would beat people and make them, um, you know, permanently physically scarred for the rest of their lives. And then they would have civil suits and the city would have to pay money. Well, you have less of a civil suit and less of a problem if you just kill him. Like all of these things are intentional decisions. These are choices. These are not accidents. Yeah. I mean, the other part of the utility motion and interestingly, part of the school board motion that was going to refund, reduce the uh, LE SPD funding mm-hmm. by 90% in three years was they both explicitly call for those funds to be redirected into communities with high numbers of black students is both a defund and a refund. And I think what's really interesting there is like, um, I, I was, I was in a meeting where people were hunting for examples of where this refunding had happened. Right. Where can you see, a, a, a move right from here to there, right? Right from police into, and there was a, a suit, I didn't know this, against the Chicago Police Department for a, basically a decade of torture against a bunch of black men. And the suit was settled with individual reparations, payments for individuals, community reparations, payments to certain services in the community. 
And one of the other pieces was it required that this history of torture be taught in Chicago public schools. Um, and we also have to be healed, right, from these traumas because learning about this history is not, it's not joyful in some ways, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But to learn about the resilience of the communities that have experienced this intense violent targeting for hundreds of years is joyful. And that to me is what I have learned about what abolitionist teaching is, is not just teaching the history of pain. It is about teaching the history of joy, of learning about the joy that, and, and the, and the, the incredible beauty of black communities in the United States and beyond. Right. And I think that to me is some of what I as a white teacher am learning is like, how do I teach about, how do I teach abolition? And Mm it, it isn't just teaching oppression, right. It's so much bigger and so much more beautiful. And I think that that feels really powerful to me and something that the utility motion is trying to do is trying to teach, not just to oppose or to even defund and refund. I, you know, when you and I taught together, and I think it's still true for you right now, that the majority of who we taught were black and brown and Asian students. I think I taught two white students in the entire 12 years um, that I taught. And one of the white students that I taught was this um, white girl who then went on to play on the football team. So even then um, (laughs) the white student was on uh, the, you know, left side of um, I'm just going to let everything happen and, and be what it is. I'm going to change things. So with that in mind, I'm wondering, you know, what tends to happen with these more conservative um, and more radically conservative and white supremacist organizations um, and groups and movement work is that they will say things like, it's okay to be white. Um, we didn't conquer, we conquested, like we earned this, we earned the, the, the things that we took away from folks, right? And there's this narrative of you go to school and you go to college and you're taught by these liberal educators who make you feel bad about yourself. And they teach you a history where you did nothing but hurt people and they're lying to you. And so I'm wondering for educators who, unlike us, do not teach a majority students of color and they're teaching a more mixed, you know, ethnic population or a majority white, having these kinds of topics and issues that you teach is still important. But how do you also incorporate examples of white people or light-skinned folks also being a part of the resistance and the repair and the joy? How do we also show that there is a, a much broader group of folks who are also on your side and also showing the complexity that sometimes the people who look just like you are not always automatically on your side. So how do we, how do we show that in a way that students don't then believe the lie that it's okay to be white and your liberal educators are brainwashing you and making you feel bad. Well, I mean, I think, I think you're, you know, you're right on that. I mean, we, you know, uh, someone taught me recently, you know, I, I learned the word ally 
um, and I learned the word solidarity. And a friend of mine taught me the word accomplice, which I found fascinating, right? Because if, if Black people in some ways in this country were not meant to survive and certainly not to thrive, right? To be, to be or, or brown people, right? Immigrants of color, right? As well, we're not meant to come to this country and, and participate in the rags to riches story that's reserved for white immigrants, right? Um, if as a white person or as a person with privilege, right? What I can reconceptualize myself and others as is accomplices, right? We are part of a struggle to make, <laughs> to do something illegal, right? And in some ways that's a, that, that feels powerful, right? If you're an accomplice in something, you are an agent, you are not standing by, you have, you know, you're in it. And your liberation is bound up in it. You are an accomplice in this. And I felt, I felt that language, even a language shift like that. I know you deal a lot in the Center for Story-Based Strategy and stuff with language, you know, and how we reshape the questions that we ask and the ways that we conceptualize things. I found that extremely helpful. And then I think to reframe history as a, oops, as a history of, um, you know, accomplices. And uh, you look at, some of the early stuff that we used to teach in the colonial period of like why they had to make these laws to separate blacks and whites, right? They had to make the law. You don't, you don't have to make a law if it isn't happening, right? You make a law to stop what is people's natural inclination, which is indentured servants and black enslaved black people. They want to run away together. They want to get gone. Right. And um, I think you teach that. I think you teach that history. And you teach that history and you teach the history of the labor movement, which in its best moments is about bread and roses too, right? Is about, I mean, not that anti-racism is the rose, but like it is about both the, the, the creation of a, of a different world for working people and it is about anti-racism, you know, um, so I think I think you you hold on to that history and then you you know you even highlight these like to me the West Coast Longshore Strike of 1934 which I always teach every year right is this powerful history that is both a multiracial worker struggle and it is a class struggle where workers take over their own cities they hold general strikes and they say we don't need police police mm. these are cop free zones this is in 1934 this is a cop free zone we will police ourselves we will make sure the right people get the gasoline and we'll make sure everybody gets fed and we will make sure this city works better and crime will be lower than when you, right? We're here. And you can see that right now when these cops are like, oh, in Atlanta, oh, well, you, you're going to try and get us in trouble? Fine, we won't patrol. Great. Yeah, Great. when, when cops went on strike, case? yes, when cops went on strike, I was like, I don't think they understand how labor power works. You have to be essential. People have to want you to be there. They don't. Like, you're just proving our point that we don't need you. And I, I, think, I think what you're talking about in terms of, like, teaching a history that's about Look at all these accomplices. It's not about their skin tone. It's not about their privileges or not. It's about, are they accomplices to hate or are they accomplices to love? Are they accomplices to care or are they accomplices to harm? Do, are they accomplices to justice or are they accomplices to injustice? And that it doesn't matter what you look like. 
it matters what you do. You know, what do you do with whatever it is that you have? And I think, you know, what's super um, powerful right now when people say, you know, what's so different about this moment? What's so different about this moment is that it isn't just black people out in the streets and it isn't just like young uh, people or, or parents, you know, or the mothers of those who have been murdered. It's such a diverse group. And I say, you know why it's so diverse? Because it isn't just that Black Lives Matter. It's also that it is with a solution that is systemic, that is more inclusive of folks that are also impacted by what the police do. If you say defund the police, now you're talking about a systemic change and that system also hurts me regardless of my skin color. So when we talk about why there's more diversity, it's because the demand is a systemic demand. It is not just a particular, you know, ethnic community demand. It's that plus, you know, so people are out. But isn't it beautiful that it can be both, right? And and I feel like it it is the ability of people to like... I saw the, I'm sure you saw these polls where it shows like the, the feeling that people have, the public opinion towards Black Lives Matter, even just like the phrase is like completely transformed. And I think that is just so, it's so important to note that, that like yes. Yes. You, you can start off as a minoritarian movement and you can, you can win people to these ideas. You can, through persistence through messaging and of course also through demand development right you can like and and the world has shifted and it happened tragically in the middle of this pandemic we have all these systems being called out in this moment and that includes these systems of you know cultural uh glorification of particular folks right so you have all these confederate statues coming down you have all these colonizing (sighs) statues coming down names of of uh you know military bases and schools and you know a confederate flag no longer being allowed um and people calling out hey this confederacy that gets so glorified only lasted five years same-sex marriage has been around longer than that. You know, why does it get so much attention, all these things? And, and I appreciate it, but I think we're missing another system, which is the glorification of policing from a young age. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was up at the, mm-hmm. I was up at the lake and I saw this little brown boy with a gun in his hand, a toy gun in his hand, and he was shooting all of his relatives in, in the water. And I was thinking to myself, if we're really going to stop things systemically, it can't just be the statues and the names. It has to be, what are our kids playing with as toys and saying, this is fun. This is, this is what I see happening and this is what I'm going to do. You know? And I think we should all be concerned right now when we see kids, small kids playing with guns, shooting one another. That should be the biggest wake-up call that that is a systemic thing that we need to change and that we need to you know, repair with. Because if we don't, if we don't start at the root, of the systems and it isn't just the flowers like i feel like when we take down the statues and we remove the flags we're taking down the petals but we're not going down to the root of how they even come about to be glorified to begin with how why does a kid want to be a cop 
So when cops as a TV show came down, when, when TV shows are saying we're going to change and we're no longer going to exist, I'm like, okay, good. But you know, what about Paw Patrol? Is Paw Patrol being canceled? You know, like we need to go careful, lower. Careful. I'm just saying, I know, I know, right? Because like, but I love Paw Patrol. Well, why does it have to be Paw Patrol? You and I made, you and I made curriculum that's about kids pretending they're criminologists because it was as far away as I could be to let's not have them be a cop. Why didn't we just make them be journalists? Why didn't we just make them be historians? Why didn't we make them social workers? You know, but why didn't we make them just the forensics doctors? You know, like it's just, it's intense to me that we, Mm. you know, we played into something that kids were excited about at the time, which was CSI and all these different television shows, but we were systemically holding up something that is at the root of how we got here. Yeah. So my question to you is this, this season was supposed to be about if a cultural product was made and you and your family were the center of it, what would it be called and what would the image be? So before I get to that, what have you been doing right now? Have you been listening to music? I know you're an avid book reader. Um, do you watch movies or TV right now? Like how are you consuming, um, you know, Uh, fun, joy, information right now? Uh, Well, I read a lot of news. I I read a lot of books. Um, I did think of you when I was watching this Spanish TV show called La Casa de Papel. Have you seen this? The House of Paper? No. It's called, when English, they call it Money Heist. Money Money Heist. What? That's very different. (laughs) Anyway, it's about these dudes who like not all dudes who like rob the the spanish mint the mint in spain anyway so there's one dude who stays outside and he just like talks to everybody on the phone and like gets it all coordinated professor so i said you know you could be a professor up in this mix helping (laughs) us helping the rest of us on the outside okay i would love to it would be an honor to be the stakeout yes look out so i've been thinking about that a lot with some of my comrades who like uh, they or their parents or you know whatever are immunocompromised or they don't feel safe or whatever i'm like you're a professor you you are you're you're part of this man like you are with us um and so i think the the beauty and weirdness of this covid moment is that you can be present in these fights not physically there there is a dimension of this struggle that is waking up to what disability justice has been trying to teach the movement for a long time, accessibility. So I think that has reinforced a lot of my learnings. You know, the show is not, it's not, it's not going to blow your mind. Dude, I've been, I've been reading, I've been (laughs) reading a a book from 2006 called Crip Theory and (laughs) it has been blowing my mind. And as someone who's 44 and was born in the seventies, if you say Crip, I just start thinking colors. Colors, yeah. colors. Like yeah, I'm not thinking about you know crip as in crippled. I'm thinking crip as in crips and bloods. I just want to give you a hand sign or something. Um, so uh, it's been it's been interesting to go with. Okay, crip theory means something else, something else. But getting into you know disability justice work. Ooh, I mean this book is like you can't just say that if it is good for you know a black woman that it will free everyone because it may not. 
if we're talking about folks who who are you know disabled like we got to we got to go even wider um so it's it's been a, a fascinating book so let's go with it's either a book mm. or it's a tv show in any mm. language you show choose <laughs> and it is centering your experience in all the things that you are and have been experiencing and your family, however broad or narrow you want to define that, what would you, what would the name of this book or TV show be? And what would be either on the cover of the book or on that sort of like promotion image um, as it shows up on your TV screen or computer screen for you to click in the face that you are giving me. I got it. But you can do this. You can do this. Um, uh, about this experience during the pandemic and everything that's happened with it. Well, I think my, can I, can I go outside the box? I, I think my kid plays these games. It's mm-hmm. like, there's this like group that creates these cooperative games. So like you, you can't win by yourself. You have to play together. Mm-hmm. So like there's one, my favorite It's called hoot, hoot owl. Uh huh. <laughs> And you have to like work together to get all your baby owls to the nest before the sun rises. And I feel like, I feel like I'm more in like a cooperative game mode. Like, I want okay, to okay, maybe- okay. You, you have a cooperative game. Let's go there. You have a cooperative game. What is the cooperative game called? And what are some of the images either on the little promo or on the box that give you a sense of what you're going to be doing in the game? It's like, you have to, co- you have to get everybody to safety away from like, coronavirus, rabid police craziness, system-wide black, anti-black racism, and, and then you have to get to liberation. I don't know. It's like a cooperative game, like Ooh, Owl, where you have to like, escape these dangers and like, get to liberation together. And everyone has to get there. Everyone has to get there. You lose. That's Hoodoo Owl. No owl left behind. <laughs> No, but he's got to get to the nest. So, so it's called hoot, 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 the owl. It's three hoots. We give three hoots no. over here. No, it's only two hoots. Just two hoots. It's more like hoot, hoot, liberation. You know, whatever, hoot, whatever. Hoot, We're all owls. There's like the coyote. There's like the wolf. There's like the pig, obviously. You know. <laughs> Thank you. Obviously. <laughs> obviously Everyone's all, obviously. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. Got it. <laughs> no, funny enough. I love that it's a game. I love that it's about gamifying being an accomplice. Um, I love that it is also a game that young children might play. Mm-hmm. As we were just talking about, you know, mm-hmm. what, is, what is the real root of some of the systemic thinking of what it means to be powerful, what it means to be a man, what it means to keep people safe. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm going to remind you that one of the tattoos on my heavily tattooed arm, um, which was the center of my teaching, is a monkey from the Barrel of Monkeys game. And in that game, you have to pick up and link arms and become an accomplice to lifting up the other Barrel of Monkeys, whose arms are already set up. They're already ready. These arms are made for solidarity. And mm-hmm. the more you can pick up, the more you win. And as soon as you drop one of them, you have to start all over again. There is no Uh winning with what you have. You have to get Uh all of them. Uh And, um, and, and I feel like it, it, that sort of symbol for teaching is more appropriate now than ever before. Um, I, 
I look forward to someday seeing a change up in the Hoot Hoot Owl game um, so that it has a little bit more of a politic to it. But I think it's already doing that without having to hit you over the head with it. Um, thank you for an early morning check-in. Um, and uh, You've been listening to Been There, Done That, your pandemic survival podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Perez. Stay well and stay human.